All right, we are going to do an open study tonight in God's Word, and um, you have provided me with some excellent questions, some interesting questions, and I hope that I'll have excellent answers to match the questions. And if you want to track down this study later uh, on our sermon audio page, we have a a section uh, dedicated to open studies if you follow the drop-down menu for the teaching series. But this will be open study number 79. All right, so the first question, actually the first two, both come from the prophecy of Isaiah. The first one is from chapter 7, from a portion of scripture that I think you're all mostly familiar with. And let's turn over there and read it. I'll read, the, uh, I'll read the portion that they're asking about, and then I'll read their question. Starting in verse Isaiah 7, verse 10, and I'll read through verse 16. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask And I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For behold, the boy knows, before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. All right, so this portion of Isaiah's prophecy contains one of the truly great messianic prophecies of Christ's first coming. And uh, it's important for us to understand because of its role as a messianic prophecy of the birth of Christ, and specifically focused on the, the uh, miraculous element of the virgin birth of Christ. Uh, but if we read the prophecy outside of its original context, it can be somewhat confusing, and the person that was asking the question is, is somewhat perplexed by it. Here's the question. Why would the Lord tell Ahaz to ask for a sign? Clearly, the Lord wanted and did give Ahaz this amazing prophetic sign of the coming Messiah. But why give it to Ahaz, since he will never get to see it come to pass? Now they're asking that last portion of the question based on their understanding that Isaiah is speaking about Christ, and speaking about the circumstances of Christ. And we have to keep in mind the the time frame difference between the actual virgin birth of Christ and the moment that Isaiah originally spoke and then wrote down this prophetic word. Uh, I'm rounding off the numbers here, but Isaiah lived some 700 years before Christ. So their question is, the Lord was dealing with a king that was alive during the time of Isaiah. This is King Ahaz. He was the king of Judah and the king in Jerusalem at this time in history. And the Lord 
um, gives him a sign which has to do with the virgin birth of Christ. So how does it function as a sign for Ahaz? So I think answering this question is going to be a really a good exercise for us in Bible prophecy interpretation. Um, it's a good example of how challenging it is at times, but how necessary it is to what Paul described in, in one of the letters to Timothy is, as, um, as following a straight path through God's word and not getting off track in terms of what the Lord intended and what he actually meant. So the, the context is super important. I'm going to now read the first portion of the chapter to lead us up to where their question began in verse 10. So let's go back to the beginning of the chapter. I'm going to read the first 10 verses or first nine verses, and then I'll try to explain a little bit of the setting of what's going on at this moment in history, and then then introduce the sign of the event that Isaiah is speaking about, the virgin birth, and then we'll talk about how this applies in Isaiah's day and how it applies in Christ's day and why it applies in both of those settings. So in chapter 7, verse 1, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Now keep in mind for context that this is after King David. This is after King Solomon. And because of the spiritual compromises that Solomon led Israel into during his day, the Lord had pronounced a judgment upon the next generation following Solomon. And the judgment was that the unified kingdom, <coughs> pardon me for my voice, just a little rough, I'll get through it, and it'll, I think it'll improve. <coughs> during, the, uh, during the circumstances of the kingdom immediately following the days of Solomon, <coughs> the Lord would take the unified kingdom of Israel, <coughs> which had been unified under King David, and he would split Israel into two nations, a northern kingdom, which would then be called Israel, and a southern kingdom, which would be called Judah. And in the southern kingdom, of course, would be the city of Jerusalem and the temple of God. So here, the setting is, Isaiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom, and specifically in this chapter, to the king of the southern kingdom, who is Ahaz. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And then we have two others that are introduced. Um, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. So now you have the northern kingdom of Israel waging war with the southern kingdom, and they've brought an ally into this battle with them, which is the neighboring kingdom of Syria with the capital city of Damascus. And they are now Israel and Syria united against the southern kingdom. They brought their army to the footstep of the city of Jerusalem. And what we're going to see unfold here is that the king of, uh, king of Judah, the southern kingdom, the king of Jerusalem, is shaking in his sandals in fear 
of these armies that have come to conquer him. And it says, they came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, meaning these two nations have allied, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Now that's just a, an image of uh, you know, a powerful wind blowing through the forest and all of the trees are shaken by the wind and we're told that their hearts, the hearts of the whole people in the southern kingdom and the hearts of the king are shaking. Now what's wrong with this image is that the southern kingdom is under the immediate and direct protection of a greater king than any king on the face of the earth, which is the Lord himself. He is in league with the southern kingdom. And Isaiah is his representative in this circumstance. And the king, while he should be concerned about being invaded, should not be afraid that he has been invaded if his heart is actually trusted in the Lord. And so the fact that his heart is shaking tells us that he is not in a healthy relationship with the Lord at this moment. And the fact that the entire nation in the south, their hearts are all shaking, tells us the whole nation has drifted away from the Lord. So in this setting, verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart faint, be faint because of the, and here he, the Lord describes these two nations to the king. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Now that's not a, that's not a, um, a fearsome description. He's basically saying, this isn't even a fire that's come. These are just two smoldering stumps. There's nothing for you to be, really be worried about or be afraid about at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim, the son of Ramaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Now here's the Lord's response. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. Meaning the Lord is declaring to Isaiah, they're not going to succeed. They're not going to conquer you. You have nothing to be afraid of. Verse 8, For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. Now this is a personal word at this point to the king in his fear. If you are not firm in faith... You will not be firm at all. So this is really a word of rebuke by the Lord through Isaiah to the king, but it's also a word of encouragement at the same time. He's rebuking him for his unbelief and his fear and his lack of trust and faith in the Lord, but he's also encouraging him, don't be afraid. The Lord is going to protect you in this circumstance. Now that leads us immediately to verse 10 where we originally started reading where again the Lord spoke to Ahaz and said ask a sign 
of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. <clears throat> the Lord is encouraging through Isaiah. Go ahead. If you Look, I understand you're afraid. You shouldn't be, but I understand you're afraid. So what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to let you ask me for a special sign. And then I'm going to fulfill whatever you ask for. To confirm to your heart that I'm with you. That I'm watching over you. That I'm protecting you. That I haven't abandoned you. And that I'm not going to let you be conquered. And then Ahaz answers in an apparently pious response. And he says, <clears throat> I will, Ahaz says, I will not ask a sign of the Lord. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, we're taught throughout Scripture as a general principle that we should not put the Lord to the test. We should not so question or doubt the Lord as to create artificial tests for the Lord to prove his faithfulness to us as his people because the Lord has over and over and over and over again in history already demonstrated his faithfulness to his people. But what's interesting in this circumstance is the Lord had already commanded him to ask for a sign. In verse 11, when the Lord through Isaiah says, ask a sign of the Lord your God, it's not a suggestion, it's not a recommendation, it's a command. And so when Ahaz begs off out of apparent piety, it's not true piety, it's actually disobedience and it's further evidence of his rebellion. And so when he says, I'm not going to ask for a sign, the Lord then through Isaiah goes on to say, uh, verse 13, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you <clears throat> to weary men that you weary my God also? Basically, he's saying, <clears throat> the Lord is not happy that you have refused to ask for a sign because he commanded you to do that. So what's going to happen is the Lord himself will give you a sign. Now, the nature of the sign is this, and this is the part, of course, we're all familiar with. Verse 14. <clears throat> Excuse me. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this portion is the portion from Isaiah's prophecy that later Matthew, in his gospel account of the birth of Christ, quotes this verse and applies it to Christ. In fact, keep your place in Isaiah and let's just remind ourselves of the quote in context of the birth circumstances in Matthew 1 and I'll read verses 22 and 23 all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet behold this is the quote of, of Isaiah behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. All right, so here's, here's where our exercise in Bible prophecy interpretation comes in. Bible scholars have read the Isaiah 7 passage, the prophecy, and they've read the Matthew application of that prophecy, and they have come up with three different ways to understand the passage. And they still, to this day, debate what is the appropriate way to understand and apply it. 
And only one of these three is actually true and is the right way to read and understand the text. So I'm going to save the right way for the third uh, way to understand it. Let me tell you the first two briefly. I don't want to get off too far in uh, examining wrong ways to, to read the text. The first interpretation says this. The Isaiah prophecy of the virgin birth only applied to the time and day and circumstance of Ahaz, the king of Israel. It was a prophecy for those days, and it was inappropriate for Matthew to take this portion, lift it out of context, and twist it and make it apply to Christ when clearly he wasn't talking about Christ at all in this circumstance. Now, the, the Bible scholars that hold that view pretty much have a problem with most all of the messianic prophecies, and they really aren't true, um, true believers in their own study of God's word. These are, these are what we would call uh, the most liberal variety of Bible scholars who deny most all of the miraculous elements of scripture altogether, including the idea that there even could be a virgin birth in reality. So I'm just going to throw their interpretation out completely. The second view, though, is fairly popular in um, Bible study circles and scholar circles, and that is that Isaiah's prophecy does apply to Christ. It is a prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ, but it only applies to Christ, and it has no bearing and no application to Ahaz and to the time that Ahaz was living in. That's not correct. It does apply to Christ, but it doesn't only apply to Christ. So the, the right way to understand the passage is this. It applies both to Ahaz and to Christ, but it applies to them both in completely different ways. So there's a, there's a popular terminology that's used in some Bible prophecy study, and it's referred to as the double fulfillment concept of Bible prophecy, meaning a Bible prophecy can be given and it can apply to one situation in ancient history, and then later, when the time of Christ comes, it applies a second time in the same way that it applied the first time. So I don't believe in the double fulfillment concept of Bible prophecy. Um, I would say these words that Isaiah spoke by the Spirit of God do apply to Ahaz, they do apply to Christ, but in completely different ways, and it's important for us to understand how they apply. So with the Ahaz circumstance, how does it apply? Well, let's, let's get into that in a little bit of detail, but the, the, the uh, application of Christ is fairly simple and straightforward. We've studied that. We, we studied that in great detail when we went through the Gospel of Matthew together, but I know that's been a number of years since we did that. I will just say, clearly, Isaiah is referring to a virgin birth. Whether Isaiah himself at the moment he spoke the words, fully understood that there was going to come a time 700 years in the future where a single virgin young woman in the nation of Israel would conceive a child without a male's contribution to that conception. And then in that virginal condition, give birth to the Messiah. I don't know whether Isaiah fully understood all of that or not. We're told in the New Testament that some, in some cases the, uh, the prophets that spoke 
messianic words of the coming of Christ didn't understand the fullness of what it was that they were prophesying about because they were simply repeating the words that the Lord had spoken to them. But clearly, it does have an application to Christ. We know that because Matthew does lift it. He doesn't twist it in any way. He doesn't lift it out of context. He doesn't make it apply in some weird way to Christ. He just sees by the Spirit of God, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, that it clearly was intended to describe the unique and special circumstance of the birth of Christ. I say unique because up until this moment in history, and even 700 years later to the moment of Christ's entry into the world, and in the 2,000 years since then, there's been one individual in all of human history that was born in the circumstance of a virgin birth, and that is Christ, and there will only ever be one until the second coming of Christ. So he is the unique birth entry under this set of circumstances in all of history but does this apply to ahaz and the answer is yes because the lord himself says in this passage this is going to be a sign for you so if it only was going to be fulfilled 700 years later it could not possibly function as a sign for ahaz it would be meaningless to ahaz Ahaz would have no understanding, and as the person was asking the question, you know, it would, it would mean nothing to him if he would have to wait for 700 years to see the circumstance unfold that would function as a sign. So, how does it fit in the days of Ahaz, and how is it different from the circumstances of Christ? So, in verse 14, let's reread the verse, 714. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. That's you, Ahaz. The Lord himself will give Ahaz a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What the Lord is doing is he's describing to Ahaz the birth of a child in the near future, not 700 years in the future, but in the near future circumstance related to Ahaz, connected in some sense to Ahaz. And when he refers to a virgin, he's not describing a woman who will conceive a child without the contribution of a male, but a woman who is a virgin prior to the moment of her conception. And she will conceive a child. Then a time period will start. In other words, this virgin young woman Conceiving a child will be like pushing a button on a timer, a heavenly spiritual timer that will set a clock in motion. And before the timer runs out, the Lord is telling Ahaz circumstances that surround you, that you are right now afraid of, shaking in your sandals because of those circumstances will dramatically change before the timer elapses. Now, what is the timer? Let's read just beyond verse 14, starting in verse 15. It's speaking now of the son that is going to be conceived by the virgin, the son whose name will be Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. And then a second time, this same concept is mentioned in verse 16. For 
before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread. Now, who does he dread? He dreads the northern kingdom of Israel and he dreads the kingdom of Syria because those two have made an alliance and come and invaded his land. The land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And then verse 17, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. And then this last line, which is a short explanation of how this is going to happen. The king of Assyria. Now, there was, at this time in history, a third nation. Well, actually a fourth nation. So we have the southern kingdom is nation number one. Northern kingdom, nation number two. Syria is nation number three. And now a fourth nation is introduced into this scenario, which is the kingdom of Assyria. Why is Assyria important? At this point in history, Assyria was the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. Just immediately before the the greatness of the Babylonian kingdom was the kingdom of Assyria with the capital city of Nineveh. It was the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. And what the Lord is promising to King Ahaz is, I know you're shaking in fear of the northern kingdom and Syria, but I'm going to resolve this problem for you, and I'm going to do it in a somewhat miraculous way by bringing in a fourth nation, the Assyrians, who are going to sweep in And they're not going to sweep into the southern kingdom and destroy you. They're going to sweep into the northern kingdom of Israel. And they're going to sweep into Syria, Damascus. And they're going to conquer both of those nations. And here's the time frame in which this must be fulfilled. And it will function as a sign to you so that when it happens, you'll look back and you'll remember that I promised that this was going to happen. And then you'll know that I am the Lord and I'm watching over you and I'm faithful to my promises and I'm faithful to my word. Now, how long would the waiting period be? In two verses, this verses again are 15 and 16. He talks about this young boy that's going to be conceived and then he's going to be born and then he's going to begin to grow up. And this is all going to happen before the boy in verse 16 knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now, what is that describing? It's describing a period of maturation and growth by this young boy. There's a certain point in life when you're born, let's say you're in your first year in life. How much does your one-year-old heart understand and really grasp the concepts of good and evil. Yeah, not really at all. I mean, you understand a little bit if your parents uh, swat the back of your hand as you're reaching to touch a burning oven and you're not supposed to touch that burning oven and you get a little swat on the hand and the, the child the child's young brain begins to conceptualize there's certain things in life that I should do and certain things in life I should not do. But does the child understand the moral nature of those choices at one year old? Absolutely not. So at what age do they begin to really grasp those things? 
Well, from, a, from an ancient culture perspective, the beginning of the dawning of understanding of those things was about five years old. Just the beginning. Because at five years old, young boys in Israel were shifted in responsibility from their mother's tutelage to their father's. And the father was to begin to take them through instructions in the scriptures at five years old. But they weren't held responsible, even at age five, for fully grasping the nature of good and evil. That took place at a specific age that is still communicated in Jewish culture in this, even to this present generation. And that is the age of what we call when a Jewish boy passes through a, a ceremony that's called a bar mitzvah. And bar mitzvah literally means son of the law, the son of instruction in God's ways. And that takes place at the age 12. And at age 12, a young Jewish boy is generally by formal ceremony uh, acknowledged as you have just transitioned from boyhood into young adulthood, young manhood. You are now not just a son of your parents, you are now a son of the law of God. You have your own direct and personal relationship to God's law standard, which is what identifies for us in life the difference between good and evil. Were it not for God's law, we would have no understanding, even as adults, the difference between good and evil. God has made that difference and distinction clear to us in the revelation of his word. So essentially, what the Lord is saying to Ahaz here is, I'm going to start a timer as a sign for you. The timer will be some young woman who right now today is a virgin. She's going to meet a man. She's going to get married. She's going to conceive a child in that marriage. And that child is going to go through gestation. That child is going to be born. That child is going to begin to grow and develop. And by the time that child reaches the age of being a son of the law... I will have resolved all of your concerns about these two invading nations. And you'll look back on this day and you'll recognize that I was faithful to my word, to my promises, and ultimately to you. Now what's interesting in terms of the actual history of this scenario was 12 years after Isaiah gave this prophecy, the nation of Syria was conquered and completely and utterly destroyed by the Assyrian invading forces. And the northern kingdom of Israel was swallowed whole by Assyria and became what we call now in history the lost tribes of Israel. Those ten uh, tribes of the northern kingdom were swallowed whole by the Assyrian nation and the, the conquering Assyrian army and were led away into captivity and never came back and were never restored. And as a result, there was no northern kingdom any longer to invade the southern kingdom. And there was no uh, Syrian army to invade the southern kingdom. And the Lord fulfilled all of that exactly within a 12-year time frame from when he had originally given this prophecy as a sign to King Ahaz. So all of that functioned at that real level for Ahaz 
And then also at a deeper level, a deeper layer of meaning, Matthew, by the Spirit of God, takes verse 14 and applies it in its ultimate fulfillment to the circumstances of the virgin conception and virgin birth of Christ. All right, so that was kind of a long explanation, but I hope, uh, I hope this prophecy is much more clear to you now. All right, let's look at another one in Isaiah. This one is uh, over in chapter 11. And this is also a messianic prophecy. And the messianic portion covers uh, the entire chapter, but in particular is focused in the first five verses of the chapter. And the question from chapter 11 is this. I'll read the question, and then I'll, I'll highlight the specific portion um, that they are asking about. They're asking a timing of fulfillment question. When did the second effort that the Lord mentions in Isaiah 11, when did his second effort to recover the remnant of Israel take place? Is the first effort that the Lord made to recover Israel throughout the Old Covenant period with the many prophets that the Lord sent to Israel? Now, the the portion that they're focused on is, uh, let's see here. Uh, Oh yeah, here we go. Verse 11. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria. Remember, we've just focused on how Uh, a a large portion of the Lord's people were swallowed into the culture of Assyria by the conquest of the Assyrian nation over the northern kingdom. Yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. All right, so the Lord through Isaiah says that there's going to come in the future. It's the future to when Isaiah is speaking, not necessarily the future to us. But in the future to Isaiah's day, the Lord will extend his hand a second time, which implies clearly he's already done a similar thing a first time. And what he's doing when he extends his hand, and whenever you see in Scripture the description of the Lord extending his hand, it just it's a it's a what we call an anthropomorphism, because the Lord in heaven in this moment of history does not yet have a hand. He will later physically have a hand when Christ incarnates, but before the incarnation, the Lord has no literal hand. And yet when he extends his hand, it's just a description of the Lord is going to move in history. He's going to affect the circumstances of history in a very direct intervention and in a very direct and powerful way. So what was the first time that the Lord did such a thing? And what was what is the second time that Isaiah is prophesying about? And he extends his hand to literally recover our, the remnant that remains of his people, meaning his people have been in some circumstance of prior judgment of the Lord scattered to places where they originally did not belong. And the Lord is going to reach in history and he's going to recover the remnant 
And the recovery is he's going to bring them back to himself in some sense. All right, so just to short form this one, the first time, the question, the second part of the question was, is the first time that the Lord did this, is it, is it meant to be understood through the many times that the Lord sent the prophets to Israel and to Judah? And it is true that whenever the Lord sent a prophet, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, any of the mi- what are called the minor prophets, whenever the Lord sent a prophet to his people, it was always, always, always an effort by the Lord to, to recover a relationship with his people that had been damaged. The damage was done by the sin and the rebellion of the people. The Lord in his graciousness and his compassion was, was reaching out through the prophets and calling the people back to himself. But there was a great event that represents the first effort of the Lord to recover his remnant. And that is captured for us in two books of the Old Testament. Those books we call the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And this is the time when the Lord had judged his people. He had uh, sent a great judgment upon them through, and this is the southern kingdom now, the kingdom of Judah, and the, the, the capital city of Jerusalem, when the Lord um, stirred up King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and King Nebuchadnezzar swept in with an invading army, and he laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. He conquered it. He laid waste to the temple that Solomon had built. He evacuated the temple of all of the furnishings, carried them back to Babylon as spoils of war, and enslaved the majority of the survivors of that conquest and of that siege. And they were in captivity to Babylon for a lengthy period of time. Does anybody remember how long they were in captivity? No, 70 years. And this is during the time of Daniel, the prophet. Daniel comes along right at the end of that 70-year period. And um, actually, he, he was there for the, what we would call the second phase of the captivity in Babylon because um, the king of Babylon invaded Israel twice and carried people away twice. So um, during this 70-year period, uh, the, the children of Israel were exiled in the land of Babylon. And there's one of the Psalms, for instance, is written uh, by the exiles during that period of time to describe um, their experiences of being uh, in captivity uh, in Babylon. And um, I don't know if you guys uh, had the opportunity to uh, three or four years ago when um, the Sons of Korah came and did a a, a concert over at uh, the bridge. And um, they, they had customized this concert around that era of biblical history and sang that psalm and, and, and uh, described in between songs what was going on during that time period. It was, really a, it was a wonderful concert. But that's what's happening here is that the, the children of Israel were in Babylon and at the end of that 70-year period, the Lord stirred uh, the, the now Babylon had, had been conquered by the end of this 70-year period by the uh, Persian Empire, and the Lord stirred the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to release whichever of the, the exiles that wanted to return home. And Cyrus was even stirred by the Lord to fund 
the effort to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem and in the days of Ezra and immediately following under the leadership of Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of the city so that God's, God's um, capital city could restart in a sense. So that was the first effort that's referred to in verse 1. Uh, excuse me, in verse 11. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. The first time was Ezra and Nehemiah and the, and the Lord returning the, um, the exiles from their circumstance in Babylon. So the question is, what is the second time? What is Isaiah prophesying about? So I'm convinced and I believe that the second time is fulfilled in the ministry of Christ himself. The reason for that is, look back in, um, you'd have to, to get the full picture, you'd have to read all of the chapter, but for the sake of our time, let's just read verse 10, immediately before verse 11. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And then this phrase is repeated again in verse 11. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. So um, the root of Jesse was introduced back in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. In the Gospel of Luke, we're told in early in the ministry, the public ministry of the Lord Jesus, that the Lord Jesus went back to his hometown of Nazareth and visited the um, synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he was called upon by the synagogue leader Uh, do you have anything to share? And the Lord Jesus stood up and he took the scroll of Isaiah, which was in the synagogue of Nazareth, and he intentionally opened the scroll of Isaiah to chapter 11, and he read the first three verses of the chapter, and he said to them, do you remember what he said after he read this passage? Today... This prophecy is fulfilled. This is the day of fulfillment of what Isaiah was speaking about, clearly indicating to the people in the synagogue that day, in a a way that literally shocked them, um, hey, I am the root of Jesse that Isaiah was prophesying about. He was speaking about the Messiah I am that Messiah. And they were so thrilled by what he shared that they tried to, they pulled him out of the synagogue and tried to throw him off of a cliff. And of course, um, they were not able to succeed. But that doesn't diminish the fact that Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. So when we get down to verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal of the people's Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. I believe that Isaiah is very clearly saying, just like the Lord called his remnant 
out of Babylon, back to the promised land, back to rebuild the temple, back so that they could renew their relationship with the Lord through the temple. In a similar way, in the day that the Messiah comes, there is going to be a hand of the Lord moving throughout the world, calling his people and drawing his people back to himself. But he's not going to be drawing them back to physical, natural Jerusalem. He's not going to be calling them back to the physical stone temple. He's going to be calling them back to himself through the person of the Messiah, through his son. And those that respond to that call, which is now a new covenant call, those are the ones that will experience a full and true restoration to right relationship with the Lord. And so the first gathering in verse 11 is a natural gathering back to Jerusalem. The second is a spiritual gathering. And we see that ultimately fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, as we recently were studying as we're working our way through Acts 2, uh, in Acts 2.9, where all of the nations, there were representatives of all of the nations that were there on the day of Pentecost that were drawn to the Lord and came to know the Lord and were restored to right relationship with the Lord in that way. All right, I think I have time for one more question. Let's go to Jeremiah. This this is a, a night of questions from the prophets. Jeremiah 31. Are we allowed to ask you questions? You know what, since we're recording, let me, let me, um, let me work my way through these and then uh, when we're done, I'll turn off the recorder and I'll be glad to uh, interact with you about that. Uh, Isaiah 31. And the question starts in verse 38, right at the end of the, um, the chapter. Let me read the last verses of chapter 31 of Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord. Now the city, just to save us time, the city is the city of Jerusalem here, as we should expect. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord, from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hill Garib, and shall then turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown any more forever. All right, so the question that was asked is this. What is meant by this phrase in verse 40 it shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. All right, so I'm identifying it in verse 40 to the city that's mentioned in verse 38. So verse 38, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord. And then in verse 40, It, the city that's being rebuilt, shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. All right, so in their question, they're not exactly clear about exactly what they're asking, but I'm going to guess that they're asking about these two key words, anymore, forever. And how could it be true? How could, it be, how could it be a true prophecy that the city of Jerusalem would not be plucked up 
or overthrown anymore forever once it was rebuilt. Now remember, it was rebuilt in the days of Ezra. It was rebuilt in the days of Nehemiah. And it was not for many years after that plucked up or overthrown ever again. Until what? We've studied this in some great detail. The events of 70 AD in the first century, which is hundreds of years after Jeremiah's prophecy, but it's not anymore forever in the natural sense of how we count time. So let's say, and I don't know the exact date of Jeremiah's prophecy right off the top of my head, but let's say it's whatever, 300 years, 400 years before 70 AD. You would say, okay, the Lord has just given a prophecy, which is a promise folded into a prophecy. And we've asked this question more than once. It always has the same and only correct answer, which is, have any of the Lord's promises ever failed? Have any of the Lord's promises ever turned out to not be true or not be fulfilled? The answer is no, the Lord has a 100% good track record of whenever he makes a promise, he brings about the right fulfillment of his word, the right fulfillment of his promises. So if the Lord promises and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, that was fulfilled in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and not only will I rebuild it, but I'm promising that the city of Jerusalem will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. And then three or 400 years goes by, and finally the events of 70 AD roll around, and the Roman armies lay siege in 66 AD to the city of Jerusalem, and they do pluck up. They do overthrow the city of Jerusalem. They lay waste to it. The majority of the people in the city that were alive at that time died in the siege, and the remainder that survived the actual events of the siege were carried away as slaves to the city of Rome. And um, the temple was destroyed. The heart of the culture and the society of, of Judah was destroyed. And that temple from that day still has not been rebuilt even to our present time. So didn't the city get overthrown and plucked up in 70 AD? The answer is yes, the city got overthrown and plucked up in 70 AD. And so which is it? Did the city get overthrown or did the Lord's promise that the city would never be overthrown get fulfilled as a promise? And the answer is both. I'm not going to, I'm not going to set one against the other and let me explain how both can be true. First, we need to understand biblical prophetic descriptions in biblical context using terms the way the Lord uses terms, not in the way that we would naturally think of those terms. And this is true in the way the Lord speaks of time fulfillment just as much as it is other descriptions of the Lord that are different than our natural way of thinking of things. Um, you know, the passage uh, from the prophet the prophets that the the Lord says, my ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts. And it's true that the Lord's descriptions even of things are different than our description of things. So what did the Lord mean when he said to the people of Israel, 
um, through the uh, ministry of Jeremiah the prophet that once I rebuild the city of Jerusalem, it's never going to be overthrown or plucked up anymore forever. This is what I'm going to call a covenant promise of the Lord. So in understanding how the Lord relates to human beings, it's really important to understand that when the Lord enters into what we call a special relationship with someone, because the Lord has a general relationship with everybody on the face of the earth, but he has a special relationship only with people that he forms a covenant relationship with. And one of the features of covenants is there are promises made and kept in covenants. Just like uh, we had a wedding in the church just, just the last few days. And in that wedding, there was a portion of the ceremony in which there were what we call wedding vows that were declared and exchanged between the two people that were married. What are those wedding vows other than covenant promises that are being made by the man to the woman and by the woman to the man? They're entering into a covenant, and part of the covenant is, I'm making promises to you, and my promise is as strong as the covenant bond that we are now forming with each other. Now, when human beings make covenant promises, they do so with best intentions, and sadly, they're not always perfectly fulfilled because human beings are not perfectly people of pristine integrity. But when the Lord makes a covenant promise... How, how solid is that covenant promise? It's 100% always. He's never failed to, to keep a covenant promise and he's never once broken a covenant promise. But the context of the promise is the covenant relationship. So in the days of Jeremiah, what covenant was in force between the Lord and his people? It's what we call the old covenant. So this covenant promise was... It, the city that I'm rebuilding, shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. What modifies the two words anymore forever? Anymore forever for, and it doesn't say this in the text, but it's the meaning of the promise. Anymore forever for as long as the old covenant is valid. For as long as the covenant lasts. Because the covenant is the umbrella under which the promises are made and kept and ultimately fulfilled. Now, the question then that leads us to is, when did the Old Covenant come to an end? And technically, according to New Covenant understanding, we've studied all this, so I don't have to go into great detail about it. The New Covenant covenant began at what point? It began in the year 30 A.D., when Jesus, at the Last Supper, served his disciples bread and wine and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Now, the truth is, there cannot be two covenants happening at the same time. And yet the old covenant was still in force at the moment that the Lord spoke those words, and he was establishing a new covenant. So what the Lord did, and he was gracious to do this, he, he gave his people a covenant transition period. 
And we focused on this concept before. The covenant transition period that the Lord gave to his people was exceptionally gracious and patient. He gave them an entire generation of history to get with the program and transition with the Lord from old covenant to new covenant. So the new covenant began in 30 AD and the old covenant began to end in 30 AD. But when did it officially and finally end? It ended officially and it ended finally in the events of 70 AD when the temple was destroyed because the temple was the center and the heart of the old covenant relationship with the Lord. When the temple was destroyed, there's no more Levitical priests. There's no more animal sacrifices for sin. There's no more high priest. There is no more Ark of the Covenant. There is no more avenue to approach the house of the Lord and to meet with the Lord and to have and enjoy covenant relationship with the Lord. And so in this promise, what we see is the Lord essentially saying, this city that I am rebuilding in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah will continue. And I promise it will not be plucked up and it will not be overthrown for as long as the old covenant lasts. And then it will be, it will be plucked up and it will be overthrown. And that's exactly what happened in the events of 70 AD. And as a result, there was now a transition from a natural city to a heavenly city, from a natural temple to a new and greater temple, a spiritual temple. And the Lord began to do a new creation work. It's like the start of a new spiritual calendar uh, in that he says that if anyone is in Christ, behold, There is a new creation. Christ's establishment of a new covenant is a new creation establishment. So any more forever starts over with the new covenant and is now focused on the Lord's work in the new covenant. So I hope you can understand how the Lord was giving this promise and how it absolutely was faithfully fulfilled to the letter by the Lord, but still the events of 70 AD brought a crashing and final end to that old covenant relationship with an old covenant people. All right, so that brings us to the end of our study tonight. And um, Lord willing, next week we'll be back with, uh, as I said, some interesting studies following Ken Gentry's uh, teaching through Matthew 24. God bless you.